Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Milwaukee, start your engines. It's time to talk about all things racing. NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, and Formula One. This is the Final Inspection Show, presented by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove. Now, here's your host, Steve Zaki. Hey, welcome back to the Final Inspection Show, brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove. And it's my pleasure to welcome on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline, uh, Peter Hyam, Formula One historian. And, of course, he has authored four awesome books and i guess we can walk them through it uh peter welcome to the show thank you it's a great pleasure to be here so let's start uh i guess we can start chronologically <laughs> let's go uh the, the first book i'm looking at here is formula one car by car 1950 through 59 and of course that is such an interesting time in formula one you got the kickoff of the world championship in 1950 and of course uh dominated by uh Ferrari and Maserati early on, and then you had the onslaught of the Mercedes team, and then uh, the transitioning later to the rear engine cars by John Cooper. Can you walk us uh, through that, please? Uh, it, it was a fascinating era. This book's um, due out in the States, I think, later this year, but um, basically the interesting thing is to see the change of the color of, of motor racing, Grand Prix racing at that time, because the cars all raced in national colours. So it was the red of Italy to begin with, with Alfa Romeo, uh, Ferrari, Maserati. Um, and as you said, Mercedes-Benz came in in 1954 and for two seasons absolutely steamrolled uh, Formula One racing. So the colour turned silver. There was a period then when you had the red of Italy back again um, with Ferrari um through when they took over the Lancia uh, Grand Prix program, um, and then Maserati, and then by the end of the by the end of the decade, um, the British had arrived with British Racing Green. So you had Van Wall winning the constructors' title in '58, and by the end of the year, the rear engine revolution and Cooper uh, winning it. Obviously, Cooper also. Um, put their toe in the water at Indianapolis in, I think, 1960, I think, with a rear-engine car. So, you know, it, it was just a fascinating era for technology and for drivers. Yeah, and then the the series kicks off in, with the Formula One car-by-car car, 1960 to 69, 
which uh, many of us consider the, the one of the highlights of Formula One, uh, romanticized by movies like Grand Prix, but also it was quite a dangerous era era, uh, era too. But you had the cars of Ferrari, you had BRM, uh, and even some of the privateer uh, uh, race teams like Rob Walker Racing, and uh, just a fascinating uh, period uh, that that was too. Well, my my personal favorite is Lotus. I I first watched a race in 1973 and got, you know, intoxicated by the sport watching Ronnie Peterson. So, um, you know, Lotus came to the fore in the, in the 60s. Um, and you're right, it was a dangerous era, um, without a doubt, but it was an innovative era and a, 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 a time of change. And, um, and yes, there were, you could still win as a privateer, you know, which... Um, Rob Walker proved, and and obviously we recently. Uh, I, I come from England, so you know we're feeling the loss of Sir Sterling. I, I know everyone is, um, but you know he won against the Ferraris in a Lotus that really shouldn't have been allowed to in '61. Um, uh, won races in Germany and, and Monaco. Um, obviously, never won the championship, but um, it was a fascinating era and um, an era of innovation and um, and excitement. Yeah, and then and then you the the next one, of course, is Formula One car by car, nineteen seventy through seventy nine, and of course Jackie Stewart, who who won Formula One championships in sixty nine, seventy one, and seventy three, was probably at the top of his game. He had Tyrrell, which was a, a you know a small team, really. I mean, if you ever see the facilities they had back in those days, it's amazing what they could do. Uh, with with that team, and then also you still had Ferrari though. McLaren was coming into its own at that time. Uh, the aforementioned Lotus with the beautiful Lotus 72, one of the most gorgeous cars uh, ever made. And then you talk about later in that uh, decade, the Lotus, uh, you know, the the ground effect Lotuses of uh, that Mario Andretti drove to a world championship in 1978. Just a fascinating period, also. I yeah. I, I grew up in that, as I said, in that era. So for me, it's really personal. You know, I had the toys, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I was lucky uh, to actually go to Tyrrell um, when I first started working for Autosport magazine back in 80s, something or other, late 80s. And you're right, you know, if you go to there and you go to somewhere like McLaren now, you just can't believe that the same thing, you know, that they were a Formula One team. Uh, and yet they were because they had the best driver in Jackie Stewart and they had a great designer in Derek Gardner and they had a, you know, Ken Tyrrell was a workaholic team owner. Um, they punched above their weight and, um, you know, were impressive. And that, that decade also had, you know, you talked about Grand Prix as one of the great motor racing movies. Obviously, 1976 is immortalized in Rush. Uh, you had the rivalry, Nicky Lauda and James Hunt, although they were great friends. Um, and, and, you know, Mario Andretti winning the world championship for Lotus, uh, and then the, the last Ferrari world championship for 21 years in Jody Schechter at the end of the decade. So, um, a lot going on. And as you said, it was chassis versus engine, you know, Ferrari traditionally believed you build a, a quick engine, a powerful engine, and you win the world championship and, um, the ground effect. Lotus of 77 in the Lotus, what was the Lotus 78? And then when they won the championship, when they perfected it in the 79, the next year, you know, blew that out of the water because you could take a four DFA, DFV engine 
and win the World Championship against a V12 Ferrari, uh, flat 12 Ferrari because you had a better chassis. And um, you go around the corners quicker, you're on the straight quicker, and you will win. You know, if you go on YouTube, a lot of these, uh, some of the um, World Feed and BBC broadcasts are coming uh, are coming up on YouTube. And I just saw the 1979 Monaco race, and you mentioned Jody Schechter. And to see Jody Schechter hustle that Ferrari in the first few laps of that race is, is just amazing. I mean, it's to see, you know, the, we're, we're so used to the cars where everything nowadays is so exact and it's so important to, to hit your, the, you know, the spots and your apexes and everything. Where at that time in '79, you could still manhandle a car around a, a circuit like Monaco, and it's just uh, so neat to see that and and to see the cars, how much they moved around. Is that something maybe fans may be missing a bit uh, today? Well, it, it's funny because um, I I used to work for a photo agency um, now known as Motorsport Images. Um, and uh, the chief photographer at the time, um, uh, back in the 60s, this is, uh, I wasn't working in the 60s, sorry, he was the chief photographer in the 60s, and he once told me the story about um, a sequence of photographs he, he took of Graham Hill, who was going around a corner, and there are three laps of him going around a corner, and um, he's sideways every time. And the reason he sideways every time is that morning, the, uh, the photographer, Michael T, uh, had said, um, you know, racing was better back 10 years ago because the cars were sideways. And, you know, and so Graham said, which corner are you at for the next practice session? And he said, which one? And so he just threw it into power slide every time he went round and it looked better. But forever people have said better back in the day, you know, and um, I... I, you know, I, I love motor racing in the 70s and the 60s and, and the 80s. Um, but I'm still, I'm itching to watch the first Grand Prix and the first time we see cars move again this season. Sure. Sure. And then uh, the the other one, yeah, the, the fourth one, of course, is Formula One car by car, 1980 through 89. And that's uh, where, where you really see the dominance of uh, McLaren Williams. And, uh, and I, you know, we, we mentioned this uh uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, Nicky Lauda's comeback in 1984 and the domina- domination of Alain Prost and then and then later in the decade with Ayrton Senna who of course the anniversary of his death was yesterday and uh, and just and then of course one of my favorite cars of all time is Alan Jones the FW070 uh, Williams car which I just thought had the prettiest lines on it and uh, walk us through uh, that that decade please well it- um, just a special time. I mean, the the drivers. Uh, you obviously have Senna versus Prost, which is one of the great rivalries in in Formula One history, and something that I think really turned a lot of people onto the sport because it was yin and yang. It was you know good versus evil type. You know that's how it was sold. But not only did you have Prost and and Senna, you had. Nigel Mansell and Nelson Piquet and Gerhard Berger, and it just seemed like one of the absolute top times for driving talent. And then on top of that, you have the turbocharged um, Grand Prix cars, which the 1.5 turbos were the most powerful cars of all time. Um, uh, so spectacular, you know, Keke Rosberg qualifying on pole position at over 160 miles an hour at, um, at Silverstone. 
apparently with a slow puncher. You know, that this is the time of heroes. Um, so it, a really great era. And for me, um, I, I, I left university in, in uh, 1982. I, I, I took a year out um, before I went and tried to find a job and um, satisfy my dad that I would make some money. Um, by going around the, the Formula One circuit um, in 1982. And, you know, it was just, it, it was a unique time in my life. And, and you know, it was a, a difficult season because Gilles Villeneuve died that year. That Ricardo Paletti died at the Canadian Grand Prix. So, and there was a lot of controversy and a lot of um, politics going on. But, you know, that for me is a very special time. Yeah, certainly. And that was kind of my... Um period I, I really enjoyed because you know obviously media was a lot different for me being in high school i loved reading uh ns ireland's and rob walker's uh grand prix re, uh weekend reports and road and track back in the day and they really put you they were really were able to, to to take you to that event and i really bonded with formula one that year in 1982 and really really enjoyed it i thought it was really cool uh unfortunately Gilles Villeneuve was one of my favorite drivers as a kid and yeah it was certainly tragic in 82 and paletti too and and up in canada that year but it was a fascinating a uh, lot of a lot of things happening with uh with the politics of formula one that year too and uh certainly enjoyed it peter uh, we're talking about peter hyam uh, from Avril Publishing and his fantastic series of books here, Formula One. It takes you through 1950 through the 80s. Uh, highly recommend it. And what, what's, what's the easiest way to order these books, Peter? Uh, I think through I think through Avril Publishing's um, website, obviously Amazon and, and the you know all uh, normal normal uh, outlets. But um, yeah, direct to AvrilPublishing.com or or through through Amazon, I would guess. Evro, it's at evro publishing dot com and a really neat site. Uh, they have a full line of uh, uh, racing themed books there. Of course, our own David Hobbs, who's on the show here, his book Hobbles is, is through them, and also Brian Redman, and of course your series too, which I highly recommend. Really, really neat book, and uh, the the the. Uh, photographs in there too in full color are just absolutely stunning and peter we certainly appreciate you taking time out today no worries thank you very much it's been a pleasure that was peter hyam on the great midwest bank hotline has your passion outgrown your home a great midwest bank home renovation loan may give you the space it deserves visit greatmidwestbank.com today simply local lending since 1935 coming up next we'll talk to jock dreesing we'll talk some formula ford racing coming up next on the final inspection show This is Final Inspection with Steve Zockey. Presented by the legendary Great Lakes Dragaway in Union Grove. On 105.7 FM, The Fan. Final Inspection Show brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove. Make sure to check out Great Lakes Dragway on social media and their website for all the latest updates. And uh, they'll be racing soon 
at Great Lakes Dragway, especially as the weather gets older and as we walk our way through this pandemic. So looking forward to that. Joining us on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline, it is Jacques Driesang, and he is the, I guess, curator, I guess you want to call it, the Kentish, the Formula Ford podcast. Welcome to the show, Jacques. Thank you, Steve. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I know the last time I was on, we were talking about a wily new rookie to the NASCAR circuit named uh, uh, Kyle Larson, and uh, I guess I'm coming at the tail end to say goodbye to it. So <laughs> it's been a uh, been a few years since I've joined you. Well, welcome to the show. We certainly appreciate it. And of course, Formula Ford's been around uh, since 1967 and has been uh, a strong series for uh, drivers working their way up through the ranks uh, in, in on the open wheel side and mm-hmm. uh, kind of walk us through uh, Formula Ford and how that came about and where it is today. Absolutely. Well, in the, in the 1960s in the UK, Formula Junior was a, a massive class and um, it became a class over here um, in, the, in the early 60s as well. But they found that, that the Formula Junior motors, they were just trying to get too much out of them. They were, they were basically 1.1 to 1.3 liter motors and uh, it was hard to get parts for, and they just weren't reliable. And uh, there was there were a few driver schools in the UK that were trying to find a, uh, a car, a motor that would work well um, to kind of teach young talent. And uh, they developed they kind of took a, a motor out of a, out of a Ford Cortina and put it in. That was a, a six a 1.6 liter motor. And uh, in 1967, those school cars were kind of used in the, in the first few races, and it it kind of kind of swept the the UK and by 1968, a few of those Lotuses and Gemini chassis came over here with, with the early Cortina motors. And then later on, the, the Ford Kent motor, uh, which became a mainstay in many of Ford's products out of the U.K. and here in the U.S., um, kind of took over. And by 1969, it, it was a national plaster in the U.S. And the, the first Formula Ford champion here was none other than Skip Barber, who uh, made it to Formula One and also started a, a massive driving school in his own right, um, and which is still around today in name, but not, not under Skip's ownership. So, yeah, so that makes sense now. The name of the podcast, of course, is the Kentish podcast. Yeah, I'm a bit tongue-in-cheek with things. You know, it started, it started with the Cortina, then it became uh, mainly Kent, and, you know, 95% of Formula Fords you'll see are Kent-powered, but... Um, in, in 2009, Honda uh, introduced the Fit Motor to Formula Ford Racing, and SCCA mm-hmm. bid on it, and uh, and thus many of the modern cars are now Honda-powered, and they're fuel-injected, while the rest of us are carbureted. And if you think that's a one-to-one deal, uh, <laughs> I got some oil to sell you. Um, <laughs> but it, uh, that's why I went with Kentish. You know, I... I couldn't figure out a good name for it, and, and me kind of hosting this podcast, um, I, I, I kind of want to chronicle history. I know you and I are both fans of, of the history of sport, and when it comes to the history of Formula Ford, I mean, there's some big names. Uh, we celebrated two of their lives this week, both Roland Rassenberger and Ayrton Senna were Formula Ford graduates. Um, Roland was a winner of the 1986 Formula Ford Festival. And for those of listeners of yours who don't know what the Formula Ford Festival is, if you know what the Chili Bowl is, if you know what the Snowball Derby is in the, those respective uh, arenas of the sport, the Formula Ford Festival takes place at Brand Patch in the U.K. And, you know, up until a few years ago, you'd have in the upper hundreds of, of drivers competing to try to win overall. Um, and I guess a kind of a side goal of this podcast is I, I want to spark interest so we can have something like that here in the U.S., kind of a, a Formula Ford Festival of its own right here. 
um, celebrating the history of the sport, um, you know, because there's modern cars, there's vintage cars, and then there's kind of some tweeners that kind of fit in the middle. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously the majority of Formula Ford racing here in the United States takes place in the vintage uh, uh, organizations where we'll have in the upwards of 50 cars on a grid. And in the, in the two main races I ran, la- ran last year in Monterey, California, we had 57 cars in my class. And at the Formula Ford 50th, which was at Road America and organized by Steve Beeler with the VSCDA, uh, there were 73 cars in my class. And, uh, and that's, you know, when you show up and you have a grid like that, you know that it's, that it's a competitive, healthy class. Um, and, and obviously, uh, the, the big thing about Formula Ford is, especially in the vintage realm, it's, it's a lot of fun to race with. Um, and no matter what, you're going to have somebody to run with, and you can do it very affordably. Well, and I think that's the, that, that's the big draw to it is, is you know, we, I think a lot of us know what Formula V is, and the Formula V is a kind of a beginner series. Mm-hmm. Which is which? Well, explain you. You could probably explain it better than I can. What a Formula V is. Yeah, yeah. So Formula V um, utilizes a lot of the components of a Volkswagen, um, and, and I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not the biggest expert on it, um, but there are a lot more components from a Volkswagen uh, Beetle chassis that are utilized to make a Formula uh, V, whether it be suspension along with motor. Whereas Formula Ford, it's a Ford motor. Um, and then a, a purpose-built Formula chassis. And, and the two chassis I run, I run a, a Dan Gurney All-American Racers Eagle chassis, which was built in Santa Ana, California, in 1977 and 78, um, by Dan Gurney's wonderful group at All-American Racers. And the other chassis I run is called an Eldon Mark 10, which was developed in the U.K. by the Eldon Cars Company. And, uh, and both of those cars are, are somewhat historic in their own right, but... Um, they basically started a formula class around a motor, and all these, these formula car companies kind of bid on and said, oh, we can make a thing out of that, similar to you know what your previous caller said about what the, the Codsworth DFV did in the 1970s for Formula One racing. Um, it, it allowed manufacturers to come about and the chassis and the things to make a, a competitive package. And, and in Formula Ford, um, there aren't too many packages that can't be made winners, both in vintage racing and modern. So it's it's very a it's very much so a a competitive class um, no no matter where you're at on things. So. Yeah, and I think it, it it's it's a racy it's a racy series and, and one of the drawbacks I mean Formula V is it was an excellent way to get into the series, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of people especially if you had the talent, uh, Formula V you were like okay I, okay I got this okay it's, let's let's move up to the next class. So I guess uh, I guess my question is, so would a lot of Formula V drivers then jump up to Formula Ford? Was that the natural progression? Well, it kind of depended on the person back in the day. And especially here in the United States, um, you had a few drivers that did that, but a lot of people looked at Formula V and Formula Ford kind of on the same parallel, where you'd it would be very stiff competition, and it's not like you could buy race wins that the motors are very similar, the chassis, you know, you're, you're going to have to go through it and, and make sure it's set up to, to each track. But um, the, the big thing was, um, you know, just getting through and, and, and making, making it work for you. So, so when, you, when you look at both classes were beginner's classes, if you will, um, you know, and then you jump, jump up to a wing car, whether it be an FF2000 or, or whatever. Um, but back in the day, anybody who was anybody started out in Formula Ford. And my guest last week was none other than the 1996 Park TPG champion, Jimmy Vassar, 
who got his start in a Crosley 32 in the, in the early 80s, a Formula Ford car. Um, and he actually still has his championship car from the 1986 runoff, the Swift DB1. Um, and obviously that, that says something when, when you keep your Formula Ford that you started with all these years later, and, and yet you also went on to win an IndyCar championship. Um, so, uh, you know, Formula Ford got a special place in my heart because so many people came out of Formula Ford, whether it be Greg Moore or uh, uh, Mark Blundell, Damon Hill. Of course, he started on motorbikes, but he was a mainstay of Formula Ford in the late 80s. Um, it's just a very fun class, and it, it's one of those – there are so many Formula car classes nowadays, uh, it, it's hard to keep track, mm-hmm. whereas Formula Ford was the class back in the day, and I feel like it's increasing in popularity, especially in vintage, because it's, uh, for those of us who know that we're not going to be professional racers anymore, it's a wonderful place to be. There's a lot of camaraderie. Um, it's very competitive. We're still we're still topping out. You know, like Road America, we're, we're doing 135 miles an hour in a straight line. And while that might not be that might not be a GT1 car fast, um, it's one of those things. If you're doing if you're doing that speed in a car that that's its maximum, you're trying to maximize every turn and keep up roll speed. Um, it is an absolute delight, and I feel like that is one of the things that have made it so attractive and so memorable for so many racers going through the grid through the years. Well, and I, I think there's a couple of things about that class that actually it kind of makes you a better driver, too, is one, it doesn't have aerodynamic uh, aids to it. There's no wings, no ground effects to it. And uh, I've heard this about classes like this where at some of the higher classes or if you go to like a, a, a GT style car like you mentioned or, or something like that, you can you can use that power to overcome your mistakes. But with Formula Ford, you certainly have to uh, be very tidy in your driving, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, the, the most important part of the package is literally the, the, the piece that's got the overalls on um, you know, unless it's a track like Road America where the straights are extra long, where a car that's slightly slimmer might pull through. If, if you're on a full schedule and in, run, in running uh, tracks all around the country, it's it's literally the, the cream of the crop is, is going to rise, um, you know, it, all things being equal. Um, obviously, but budgets may, may uh, vary, but um, it's it's been a, a very big focal point in drawing out talent through the years. Um Anybody who's anybody who came up the ladder and did did well in Formula Ford usually did well down the road. We're we're talking with uh, Jacques Dreesing, who has a podcast. It's called the Kentish, the Formula Ford podcast, and it's pretty interesting because uh, you, you you get some pretty pretty big players on there and pretty interesting people, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Jimmy Vassar. But who are some of the other people you've had so far on this podcast? Well, uh, the first. Uh, I can actually go in order. I, I kind of have them memorized here. The the first uh, gentleman who I had on was Reed Hazelton. He's a local racer here out of Milwaukee um, who has been a, a big-time race winner. He's finished second at the runoff multiple times and, and is a great, uh, great personality. We also had um, Ethan Shippard out of California who, is, uh, who lived in Wisconsin for a long time but now has a prep shop out in, in Sears Point. Episode three was Sam Smith, who was previously of Roden Track, but now he is with Haggerty, writing for them. And, uh, and of course, he can be seen on NBC Sports Network. Um, uh, uh, he's got a show on there. Um, and as well, we had Brian Cohn, who's a racer out of St. Louis. Uh, we had Jimmy Vassar. So we, we've kind of um, we've started out very strong, um, but I've worked, I work for an essential business, so my time in the past weeks has kind of been uh, slimline, working long, long days. But... Uh, 
my goal for 2020 is I have 43 names I want to interview, uh, some of them being relatively unknown by people and some of them being very, very well known. And, uh, you know, as I realized in my time of the sport, we're all just humans. I mean, the, the whole, uh, you know, fanboying out thing really isn't a thing for me. I, I, I understand racers. We're all kind of the same. Um, it's just some of us made it further, and, and obviously the people I want to interview are, are kind of the, the, the high, high-powered high characters of the sport who I know are going to be able to tell a good story and, and with it bring some understanding of, in Formula Ford, it could have been you or me as well. Yeah, it certainly is. You know, and, and I'd rather talk to somebody that's a little bit less known that's a better interview than a, mm-hmm. a superstar that maybe is not a, gr- a better interview. And, yeah, we, and we, we've we've had this on on Sports Radio 105.7 FM, the fan, where you know there, there are certainly people that are throughout football or baseball or that that you know those are you know, I'd rather talk to a guy who has a lot to say than mm-hmm. a bigger guy who doesn't have a lot to say. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's one thing. No matter who I interview, I always ask one particular question, and that is, in your time in the sport. Who, who is the unknown who could have, should have, would have made it and was maybe more talented than you? And I know that, you know, Steve, you and I know each other well. I know there's 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 some people that, that we have a fondness for who may not have been in the racing or the sport of racing very long or, or maybe their, their time was tragically shut, cut short. But I almost like talking about those people more um, than, you know, your Michael Schumachers or whomever. Um, I just feel that there's a bit more to it that, that, that story that's left unfinished is, I feel, the, the depth of that, it's just, it, it's more, what do I want to say, it's more magnetic to me. And um, obviously those are the names that I'm always drawn to. Yeah, and, you know, it's, so many are like that. And, and you, you look at, well, like Roland Ratzenberger, you know, people have been talking about him because of, you know, the weekend that happened at, at Imola. And he certainly was an up-and-coming driver. I don't know if he would have been world champion because of the politics involved, but mm-hmm. he certainly was a very talented driver and was certainly deserving of, of an upper echelon ride. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's just, there's so many drivers, you know, especially if you go back to the 60s and 70s, where it certainly was more dangerous time as opposed to 1994. But, yeah, there are certainly drivers like that that, that unfortunately didn't make it to various reasons, whether it's, uh, um, you know, politics or unfortunately, uh, fatality. And, you know, there are certain, uh, drivers out there that are still around there that are interesting. Uh, and who, who, who are some of the ones that, that some of the other ones that, that we might see on this podcast? Well, I've been in talks with, with some people. I know that, uh, the founder of racer magazine, Mr. Paul Fanner, um, and he'll always say he's a he's a, a, a co-starter of that. But uh, Paul raced Formula Fords in the 70s, and and has a huge you know he'll always kind of talk it down because he's a very humble guy. But he's 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 done a lot to help many people in their careers. But I want to talk with him about his time in Formula Ford. Um, obviously, there's there's a Formula One driver who never quite made it in Formula One, and it wasn't because of his skill level. It was just because of as we what you said politics. And that being Tommy Byrne, I'd like to have Tommy on this year. And there's there's also some people, some very big unknowns who, I, it's it's one of those when when you're trying to find people, and and you you know this obviously, when when you're trying to dive through history and going through phone books and trying to find people from the past, 
sometimes you find people who aren't really willing to open up or might be kind of shy, but you know that once you pry that lid open, you're going to get stories that no one's heard. And I know there's two or three of those racers in the annals of Full Metal Ford that I've, I've reached out to, and, and they've been very tentative thus far. But I know that, you know, through friends of friends, I think we can we can make uh, Kentish very popular very quick by just the personalities and the stories being told. And I, and I feel like during this uncertain time, this, you know, when I got back from Amelia Island this year, we had, we had one of our eagles on display down there. I kind of jumped all in on Kentish because I knew there's going to be a lot of people sitting at home and with not much to do. And if I can add just a splinter of, of, of interest in, 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 in this area of the sport and just in the personalities of people out there, and then I'll feel pretty happy with it. And, and obviously the feedback I've received thus far has been pretty positive. Um, I got to work on my, uh, my microphone, you know, so it doesn't sound like I'm talking through a tin can, but uh, other than that, uh, every guest I've had on has been just absolutely brilliant. So. We're, ta- we're talking with Jacques Driesing, uh with his podcast, the Kentish, the formula Ford podcast. And what's the easiest way to get that podcast? Absolutely. Um, if you go to podbean.com and type in Kent, like Clark Kent, and then dash I-S-H, so Kentish, um, you'll find me. So it's kentish.podbean.com. Also, if you look up the Formula Ford podcast on Facebook, you will find us on there. Um, I usually drop a photo the day before an episode goes up uh, of, a, of a driver in the past, and I don't say who it is, but I'll, I'll kind of share something about them, and then the next day it usually pops up, and uh, off we go. Very good. Appreciate you taking time out, Jacques. And uh, you know, and you know, with with this, you know, we're we're in. You and I are both fans of this one. I always say the uh, the official podcast uh, of of the Final Inspection Show is Dinner with Race. We certainly appreciate the things that they do on, on that show. But you know, there there's you know, I always said you know the 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 internet is ninety five percent crap, but that's that five percent that really makes it worth it. While there's a lot of garbage podcasts out there, but uh, I, I think uh, yours is part of that five percent that that on top on the top. That's really good, and we certainly appreciate you uh, taking time out on the show today. Okay, thank you very much for your kind words. All right, that was Jacques Driesing on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline. Has your passion outgrown your home? A Great Midwest Bank home renovation loan may give you the space it deserves. Visit greatmidwestbank.com today. Simply local lending since 1935. Coming up next, we got three questions with Larry. We're coming up next on the Final Inspection Show. Steve Zaki and joining us on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline, it is Larry Janicek. How are you doing today, Larry? I'm doing great, Steve. I've been doing little projects outside. It's a nice day today. Not too hot, but very pleasant. It certainly is. And, uh, of course, we have, uh, I, I guess you could call it uh, breaking news. And, of course, breaking news on the fan is brought to you by the Dell Technologies Small Business Pod Podference. Go listen at radio.com forward slash Dell. And, of course, that's uh, you and I are both uh, very interested in, in help uh, with the uh, National Sprint Car Hall of Fame and their induction uh, uh 
ceremonies, uh, which usually happens at the end of the end of May. Usually, the weekend after Memorial Day has been moved, and that, of course, is to July 31st and August 1st this year. Yes. Yep. I finally uh, uh, had to uh, make the decision, and uh, I, I know it was a consternation for the, Bob Baker, the director out there, but they they did change it to uh, to that weekend which uh, goes along with the uh, All-Star Circuit of Champions Sprint Cars. They're racing there that weekend also. So, And there's also some good races that weekend at Iowa Speedway, which, as you know, is only a half an hour away from Knoxville Raceway. So all uh, the race fans will be, I know, itching for racing this summer. That'll be a very uh, uh, interesting weekend, and I uh, recommend all the fans to come out to Iowa, where I always say, you know, Wisconsin has a lot of nice people, but Iowa, uh, they certainly roll out the red carpet for us, and we certainly appreciate the race fans out at Iowa, especially at Knoxville Raceway. So looking forward to that. And uh, what's your your first question uh, today, Larry? Well, last week I was uh, heavy on questions on the history of the Indy 500. Uh, This week I focused on a name that's uh, been in the news a lot in the last few days, Matt Kenseth. First question, Steve, is who was the driver of the Robbie Reiser Bush Series car who got hurt, thus allowing Matt Kenseth to get that ride? Oh, boy. Uh, that is through, uh, of course, that was a sponsorship deal through Kraft Foods. And I want to say Tim Tim Bender, right? You're right. Very, yeah, very good. And uh, Tim Bender was, uh, he, you know, he brought some money. And, of course, you know, uh, Robbie Reiser was a fledgling uh, 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 Bush team at that time. And, of course, uh, took the money and run. And, and well, you could really see the difference between the two when uh, Matt Kenseth took over. And, you know, it's funny because Matt Kenseth's first ride uh, in the Cup Series was substituting for Bill Elliott, who I believe it was for... Uh, I think had a, his father passed away, and he drove that uh, McDonald's car at Dover, and just was just everybody was like, "Whoa, who's this guy?" And we knew uh, once once I think he finished sixth in that race, which was very unusual at the time for 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 a, a, a driver to step into a car and to be fast that that quick. We we've seen that in the, in the past with other drivers. Uh, you know, Kenny Wallace was one driver who, who, who did that a lot, but, um, you know, the, for, for a driver to step in that weekend and, and expect big things is kind of tough because the car is usually set up for another driver and it's, you know, and the bottom line is the substitute driver doesn't want to put that car in the wall. So he wants to, he wants exactly. to bring it back on the trailer in one piece. So, uh, Matt Kenseth really hit the ground running with, uh, with 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 the Bell at racing team that ninety four car and and the rest is history isn't it? Right, exactly. That was in September of nineteen ninety eight, and you're very correct that Bill uh, missed missed that race to because of his dad's funeral. Very good. What what do you got from the next one? Okay, on February twenty first, nineteen ninety eight, who did Matt Kenseth nudge out of the way? To win his first NASCAR Bush Series race, that was Tony Stewart at Rockingham, yeah. I believe. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, You're on the money there. They had now, a Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think I know I think I think I know where you're going. Go ahead. Okay. The follow up question for a thousand bonus points is what was the sponsor on the car that day? <laughs> I remember this because I remember uh they put out a press release to kind of help the sponsor and to 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 get noticed and that was Lycos.com, L Y C O S. And I remember after he won that race uh, getting the email or getting an email or, or whatever it was to to go and and I did that I went I remember going on Lycos.com to congratulate uh, Lycos and and them sponsoring uh, Robbie Reiser and of course Matt Kenseth winning the race now and I've mentioned this before on the show you know we are not a fan of the old uh, just punting somebody out of the way to get a win unless unless it is for that driver's first win. We'll kind of give him a little bit of a, bit of a break on that. And Matt Kenseth needed that. Not only that, but that team was pretty much out of money. <laughs> so if he would not have not have won that race, who knows what would have happened to Rob, much less not only uh, Robbie Reiser Racing, but much less uh, Matt Kenseth. So yeah, you got to give him a, a yeah good good job on that. But they 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 needed that win to just survive to get to their next race. What's interesting when I when I uh, did some checking on this is at, at that time that Lycos was one of the biggest search engines yeah. uh in the United States. It was. And it, it actually uh hung around for years and years in in other different uh uh situations and it was actually uh still around at that name until uh May of twenty eighteen when it was uh, renamed the uh, Brightom Company Group. Really? Did not know that. I, I figured they would have been gone by, you know, about five, you know, five years after that. But they hung around, huh? Interesting stuff, yep, Larry. Did. Okay. Right. So now another another Matt Kenseth question. In 2000, what big name driver did Matt Kenseth beat out to win the Cup Series Rookie of the Year? Oh, uh, was it Dale Earnhardt Jr.? It certainly was. Yeah, you really yeah, there the was a, today with these Kenseth questions. Those two, those two kind of came in up through the ranks together, and uh, I know it was kind of frustrating for us Wisconsin fans because Earnhardt Jr. Jr. won the, the 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 championships. I think won two championships in a row before stepping up to the Cup level, and. Uh, and then Kenseth and him kind of battled. It was Kenseth though that actually went, that won the championship, and uh, Earnhardt Jr. was never able to do that. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, to be honest, you know, I love love Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, the driver and, and much more as as a media personality now. And uh, Kenseth is. Uh, I I do give you know Kenseth can be a little bit dry as Dennis Michelson mentioned in the first hour, but he does have a good, kind of a dry, little sarcastic cutting humor, which I certainly enjoy, which you don't see too much in in uh, in the media on the motorsports side. Right. I That uh, interview that he did with uh, Bill Michaels, I thought was really good. Really yeah. good. Yeah. Got got time for one more? You bet. Come on, bring it, okay. bring it on. <laughs> We're going to switch back to the Indy 500. In 2014, 
Oh, the new starting stuff. lineup. <laughs> the starting lineup was uh, uh, first time that this had ever happened uh, in the in the starting lineup. It, it's it's really uh, something that's uh, very unusual. Was it the was it five women? Nope, nope, nope. Uh, give, it, oh, you know ahead. what? It might have been former win, winners. Is it former winners? No, but it's close to what you're talking about. That it's former something. This is the first time that at least a one series champion from IndyCar, Formula One, Villeneuve, and NASCAR, Kurt Busch, were in the starting field. Okay. Huh. I would not have, uh, like, other champions. I mean, yeah, champions uh, in other series. Yes. Yeah. Okay. A Formula Formula One and a NASCAR champion, and, of course, IndyCar champ. There were IndyCar champions in it, but first time that ever happened. Oh, very good. And, uh, you know, looking... I, I write newsletters for the Harry Miller meet, and we're we're putting together a newsletter now, and I'm just trying to find something, digging through something to write about getting a a, a decent subject in it. You know, it, it's tough to do because I don't want to just go for the long, long, you know, the low low hanging fruit. You know, you want to kind of find something interesting. I was doing some research. And we always, you know, uh, uh, Donald Davidson always mentions this too. You know, 1967. Uh, that that race was had, was so stocked full of drivers and and just was uh, so many with Formula One drivers and you had uh, NASCAR drivers in there and it was just probably one of the deepest fields of uh, in the history of the Indy 500 for for drivers uh, when when you look at it when you have drivers like you know Yoke and Rent you got Dan Gurney of course AJ Foyt Mario Andretti. Well, you have Leroy Yarborough in there and, and other drivers. It's just Parnelli Jones and just, you got sprint car champions, just a, a potpourri of, of drivers of, of different, uh, from not only Europe, but in the U.S. It was just just a neat, neat star-studded field in 1967. Was one of the Allison brothers in there? Uh, no, uh, they were not. They didn't come till later in, uh, uh, one of the things uh, a lot of uh, people might not re- know, Donnie Allison, of course, who had two top tens and one Rookie of the Year, driving for AJ Foyt. AJ Foyt had actually offered him a full-time deal in IndyCar racing to run the whole series, and I believe 1971, and Donnie turned it down. So uh, Donnie Allison was a hell of a driver. Unfortunately, got hurt a few times and and didn't have the success that Bobby had, but uh, was certainly. Uh, uh, in many ways, an equal to Bobby when it comes to talent. So, uh, Larry, we certainly appreciate you taking time out and uh, joining us again today. No problem, Steve. I enjoy it. You guys have a great weekend. Well, thank you, Larry. And that was Larry on the Great Midwest Bank Hotline. Has your passion outgrown your home? A Great Midwest Bank home renovation loan may give you the space it deserves. Visit greatmidwestbank.com today. Simply local lending since 1935. And who is that? And, of course, is Mayor Mitch, who is uh, working the soundboard today. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, I guess I should say welcome to the show, Mitch. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been, it's been a while, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, 
Yeah, and uh, of course, we'd like to thank everybody that joined the show today, of course. Uh, and that was, uh, of course, uh, the Polish pipe bomb, Jeff Orlowski, uh, Orlowski. And then uh, not only that, but Dennis Michelson, uh, Jacques Driesing, and Peter Hyam from Evro Publishing. Make sure you check out his books on Formula One. Good stuff there. Uh, Larry Janicek and Jacques Driesing from the Kentish Formula Ford Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Final Inspection Show. We'll talk to you next week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.